Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we'll answer a listener question about how researchers test drugs for deadly diseases like COVID-19 without exposing people to the disease. You'll also learn about why you can thank Fanny Farmer for basically every recipe you've ever cooked and an audio illusion that sounds like a tone is rising forever. Let's satisfy some curiosity. We got a listener question from Habib, who writes, I recently heard about a successful field trial on using pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, for HIV prevention. My question is, how do they do such drug trials without intentionally exposing people to HIV? Well, considering the fact that we're currently racing to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, this is a very well-timed question, Habib. So in a non-medical study, like, say, one where you're trying to determine the best rain repellent for a car windshield, you'd treat the windshield with different products, then expose it to water and see which one works best. But if you're developing a drug to protect humans from a potentially deadly, incurable disease, you can't expose them to that disease. It's just not ethical. That's not to say it hasn't been done with other curable diseases. Vaccines for things like cholera, typhoid, and even influenza have been tested on people who were deliberately exposed to the disease. Those are what you call human challenge trials. But there's no cure for HIV-AIDS. You just can't do it. So instead, researchers start by measuring antibodies in their blood. And in later trials, they just let the participants live their normal lives. Usually, the researchers give half of them the real drug and half of them a placebo, then wait anywhere from a few months to a few years to see how many people in each group get the disease. If people taking the real drug contract the disease significantly less often than the people taking the placebo, that suggests the drug is effective. This whole process takes a lot longer than deliberately exposing people to the disease, but it carries a lot less risk for the participants. And like I said, this has big implications right now when the whole world is waiting for a vaccine that can protect us from COVID-19. At this very moment, more than 165 coronavirus vaccines are in development and 27 are in human trials. Those trials are using these same methods, giving the vaccine to some people and not others, then seeing how many of each get COVID-19 in the real world. But some scientists are suggesting that we go ahead and expose those participants to COVID-19 just to speed up the process. Others say that even putting aside the ethical implications, some places have such high levels of new infections that doing that probably wouldn't speed up the process all that much. So for now, we watch and wait. If you want to keep tabs on the process, the New York Times has an excellent coronavirus vaccine tracker that we'll link to in the show notes. Thanks for your question, Habib. If you have a question, send it in to podcast at curiosity.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. Have you cooked something from a recipe lately? If that recipe told you what temperature to set the oven to and the exact measurement of each ingredient, so, you know, every recipe, there's one woman you can thank, and you've probably never heard her name. Let me tell you about Fanny Merritt Farmer. She was born in 1857, and Fanny Merritt Farmer is known as the woman who made cooking scientific. She was a cooking teacher, writer, and lecturer who was the closest someone could get to being a celebrity chef in the 1800s. She insisted on a scientific approach and precise measurements. 
which inspired generations of cooks and built a legacy that lives on in every American kitchen. For all she achieved, Fannie Farmer actually got a pretty late start in her career. She suffered a stroke when she was 16 that left her partially paralyzed and forced her to quit school. She eventually recovered and took a job as a household assistant, which made her realize how much she loved to cook. So at age 30, she became a student again, this time at the Boston Cooking School. She took to the subject matter so well that within a few years, she was literally running the place as the school's director. To understand Fannie Farmer's accomplishments, you need to understand what cooking was like in the 1890s. At the time, recipes assumed a certain amount of culinary knowledge. Measurements were usually pretty subjective, too, with recipes often calling for things like a goodly amount of molasses, or just telling the reader to bake something without specifying a temperature or a length of time. Farmer changed all of this. She believed that precise measurements and instructions make for better food. Her 1896 cookbook was called The Fanny Farmer Cookbook, and it made no assumptions about the reader's education or skill. And as a result, the recipes actually worked, and the cookbook sold 8,000 copies in the first year. It even served as the go-to text for such culinary greats as Julia Child. Fanny Farmer also wrote a lot about the role food plays in health, before nutrition science was a thing. She even became one of the first women to lecture at Harvard Medical School, specifically on the role food can play in fighting disease. Her lectures for the general public were popular enough to be printed in newspapers. In 1902, she left to open her own cooking school, this one aimed at homemakers. She passed away in 1915, but her cookbook lives on, having sold more than 7 million copies worldwide. By taking a scientific approach, she ended up making cooking accessible to everyone. And recipes were a goodly lot better. If you look at a barber's pole, it seems like those diagonal stripes are moving upward forever. I mean, you know they can't be. It's just a pole with stripes on it. But you get the illusion of something like infinity. Well, there's an audio illusion that gives that same impression. It's called the shepherd scale. And filmmakers use it on you all the time to mess with your brain's expectations. Ready to learn how to spot it? Okay, well, here's an example. We played kind of an exaggerated version, but it sort of sounds like it rises forever, doesn't it? But it doesn't. In fact, it repeated itself halfway through. We'll play a much wilder version in a second. Don't worry. The Shepard scale is named after its inventor, Robert Shepard. Shepard isn't a musician. He's a cognitive scientist. But in 1964, he published a paper demonstrating a way to generate tones that lead to a complete breakdown in a person's ability to judge whether one pitch was higher or lower than another. He did this by generating individual tones made up of octaves. That's a musical term for the higher or lower version of the same pitch. Like low C is an octave below middle C, which is an octave below high C. Then he'd play those notes in a scale. C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and back to C. <laughs> but as the scale rose in pitch, he'd soften those higher octaves while turning up the lower octaves. 
once you got to the end of the scale, then the ending C would be the exact same tone as the starting C. But the listener's ear had already grabbed on to a lower octave, another stripe on the barber's pole, if you will, to make it sound like the next logical tone in the scale. This works going up or down. It also works when it's not a scale at all, but just one continuous gliding pitch. French composer Jean-Claude Risset built on Shepard's creation to produce this kind of tone, called a Shepard Risset glissando. This one sounds super cool. Have a listen. Again, it sounds like it's falling forever, but it's not. The octaves that make up the tones are being subtly tweaked to make it sound that way. These illusions take advantage of the fact that we judge musical notes not only by height or how high or low the pitch is, but also by tone or what note we're actually hearing. When you hear a C followed by a D, you expect that D to be higher than the C. So even if it's an octave lower than the C, your brain thinks higher. And that's what you hear. Movies use this all the time to create suspense. Christopher Nolan is a particular fan of it. So the next time you hear a tone rising into infinity, you'll know it's not. It's just the shepherd scale taking advantage of your brain's expectations. Before we recap what we learned today, we want to remind you one more time to please vote for us in the podcast awards. Just visit podcastawards.com, register, and you can vote for Curiosity Daily in the categories of education, science and medicine, and people's choice. It only takes a minute, which makes it a super fun weekend activity. And then after the weekend, you'll hear some awesome stuff on Curiosity Daily. That's right. Next week, you'll learn about how humans literally use their noses to navigate, five myths about summer dangers, whether men really see less mess than women do, the best time of day to exercise, and more. You'll also learn about new research into how to form new habits with Stanford behavior scientist, Dr. B.J. Fogg. Awesome. So now let's recap what we learned today. Well, we learned that in clinical trials for vaccines to protect against deadly diseases, researchers don't expose new people to those diseases. That wouldn't be very ethical. Instead, they just let participants live their lives. And if the people who got the vaccine get infected less than the people who didn't, then the vaccine is probably effective. And we learned that Fanny Farmer is the woman who turned cooking from an art into a science. So Bobby Flay, Jada De Laurentiis, and Guy Fieri have Fanny Farmer to thank. Fanny Farmer took us all to Flavortown. (laughs) (laughs) And we also learned that the shepherd scale is an audio illusion that makes it sound like a note is rising infinitely or falling infinitely. Go watch a Christopher Nolan movie and you'll probably hear at least one. I need to see Inception again. I think that would be a great thing to do this weekend. I have never seen Inception. Oh, it's really good. It hits me in my it hits me in my sci-fi region. I don't know. I've got like a you know, like like when you have a um it's like a funny bone, but it's for sci-fi. That I don't know. This is weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it scratches my sci-fi itch. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, I reference it all the time. I've made Inception references on this podcast, but... (laughs) That's right. It's kind of like when you watch cartoons growing up and you see basically every scene from The Godfather. 
but then you haven't seen The Godfather, and then you go see The Godfather, and you're like, oh, I've seen all of this before, just parodied in various cartoons and films. Yes, there are so many movies like that. Yeah. Are you a big Christopher Nolan fan in general? Yeah, I've really enjoyed every Christopher Nolan movie that I've seen. Like, Interstellar was amazing. And they actually worked with Kip Thorne on it, who's a big black hole scientist. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer and Cameron Duke and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. Try cooking a new recipe. Visit CuriosityDaily.com for a link to vote for us in the podcast awards. And then after all that, join us again Monday to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.